You're now listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, episode 12. Welcome to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for operators of large-scale real estate portfolios. My name is Brandon Hall, and I'm your host. Together with my co-host, Dylan Brown, we talk about tax and legal strategies, and we bring on operators of large portfolios for in-depth discussions on how they grew their business. We hope you enjoy, and with that, let's get to it. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Major League Real Estate Podcast. Today, Dylan and I interview Andrew Keel, who shares his journey investing in mobile home parks. He scaled his business to over 40 syndications and $125 million in assets under management. He talks a lot about building a strong team. We spent time digging into how he leverages offshore VAs, virtual assistants, There's a lot of people online, a lot of gurus that will promote using offshore teams, but it's very light on the details. We dove into specifics on this episode with Andrew about how he utilizes his VAs, what specific tasks he gives them, what their roles and responsibilities are. And it was really interesting to learn how he's leveraging global talent and becoming a much leaner shop compared to the funds that he's competing with. So definitely stay tuned on the team building piece. But he talks about the mobile home park industry, why mobile home parks, why not other types of assets, and talks about the various opportunities for manufactured housing over the next decade or so. One thing that I took away from this was that manufactured housing is really hard to get permitted because basically nobody wants to live next to mobile home parks. But at the same time, communities need mobile home parks because it's the starter home for a lot of the people in the community. So it was really interesting getting his perspective on that and learning a little bit more about the government end of investing in manufactured housing. So stay tuned. We've got an awesome episode here. Let's go ahead and bring Andrew onto the show. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Why don't you go ahead and just give our listeners a little bit of a background on how you got to where you're at today? Yeah. uh, Geez, I started out in marketing and sales. And on the side, I was flipping houses just a few a year. And I stumbled across some mobile homes and I didn't have a lot of cash. So it was a a low barrier to entry to kind of get in. And I, I flipped a couple of these mobile homes, really liked it, bumped into a park owner who kind of took me under his wing and kind of taught me syndication and how I could raise, you know, pool together investors to, you know, do bigger deals. And, you know, now we have over 3000 lots and we've done over 40 syndications. So yeah, it's kind of ballooned up really, you know, really big time over the last nine years. Yeah. I was just about to ask you, when did you start that whole journey? Yeah. 2015 is really when I you know, started going. I had my W2 job where I was a, a sales manager and started, you know, doing the fix and flips on the side. And so now you have, you said 40 syndications? Yeah, over 40. We have 43 mobile home parks. Some of those were like portfolio purchases. And then we also have six self-storage facilities. We used to have 11, but we've sold some of those off. Okay. Definitely want to ask you questions about that. But in terms of portfolio size, what are we talking about in terms of total value? It's like 125 million in assets under management. That's impressive. So why mobile home parks? Dude, I love mobile home parks so much. I mean, back to those days when I had those individual trailers and I was flipping them, the very first two mobile homes that I bought, I got a deal. I I sent out a bunch of letters to like probate and divorce and, you know, motivated sellers is what I was looking for, for fix and flip single family. Well, somebody called me and said, Hey, I got these two mobile homes. I just want to get rid of them. 
I made the guy an offer of $1,100 for each. So $2,200 total. And he's like, sure, come get the titles. So I drove up to Ocala, bought those two homes, had no idea like how I was going to make money. I just knew it had to cost more than that to build these things. Got on YouTube, found this awesome guy named Lonnie Scruggs. Not sure if you've heard of this guy, but he wrote a book called Deals on Wheels. And he talks about buying mobile homes in other people's parks, fixing them up a little bit, and then selling them on contract to like an end user, like a person that's going to live in the home. So I did that on these first two. And I had like 50 people reach out the first day that were qualified. And like the park does the background check and everything and had the money for the down payment. I sold both of those homes for $2,500 down and then $250 a month for 60 months. And that was my first two. So I went on to do like 19 more of those. And through that process, I met a park owner who kind of took me under his wing and, and showed me why owning the whole park is a little bit better than the individual trailers. So you're actually in that scenario, obviously you're just the actual asset itself. You don't own any of the land. You're just basically parking that thing there and you're still, is it you that's paying the rent or is it the tenant or the owner of the trailer that's paying the rent? You know, I, I don't deal with this very often. I'm sure this is like second nature to you, but just lay it on me like I'm a newbie because I totally am. Yeah, it's called Lonnie dealing. And this is just, you know, obviously how I got my start. But yeah, so you basically, you own the trailer, you're selling it to an end, end user. They're paying lot rent to the park and a home payment to you to get the title and to, you know, get the lien released off the title so you can own it. So that's kind of how I got into the space. Obviously, the demand for affordable housing is off the charts. And then also the supply is shrinking every year. A lot of people don't know this, but like it's super hard to get zoning approved to build a mobile home park. No one wants to live in a neighborhood that backs up to a mobile home park. So the supply, you know, the people are buying mobile home parks and then converting them into, you know, multifamily apartment complexes because it has that multifamily zoning. So it's, it's just a very unique asset class, probably the only, right, that I can think of where the supply is shrinking every year but the demand is just off the charts for affordable housing. That's a noteworthy point that I think a lot of listeners would take away from. And so I want to ask a question about kind of the structure, because now you've obviously moved to owning the parks itself, right? You're owning the pads and you're doing a lot of leasing out. Do you also own some of the trailers themselves? And do you also have people who maybe were in the position that you were in when you first started out kind of doing the same thing in the parks that you now own? Yes. Yeah. So we do own some of the homes. It's not our preference. It's just more scalable to have people paying lot rent, you know, or the, the tenants own their homes. They have, there's some pride of ownership there once they do own it. And then ultimately it comes down to affordability. It's super affordable. The average lot rent across our portfolio is like $400 a month. It's just really cheap. But yes, we do work with some Lonnie dealers that own some homes in our parks and then are selling those to the tenant that lives there. It's a convenient way to kind of rehab some of those homes and get them brought online where we're it's like the park owner that I started working with, right? Like I didn't understand it. Like, why are you giving me these homes for free? You know, then when we went out to lunch and he kind of told me, he's like, Hey, all I want is lot rent. You know, I don't want to go through the headaches of rehabbing these things and then trying to find a buyer. You can have fun with that and make that spread. I just want the consistency of the sticky tenant that's just paying lot rent. And you know, that's what we're, our whole model is built around. And obviously the top lenders in the space, that's what they want too. They want the tenants to own the homes because it's a, a stickier tenant. Is managing a mobile home park tough? It's very tough. Yeah. <laughs> I, say, I feel like I, I hear about a lot of headaches. Can you kind of go into some of that? I imagine the first handful of deals that you did probably look very different to how you structure everything and run everything today. So how has that changed operationally for you over time? Yeah, I think from the outside, it looks passive, right? And I think that's like a myth. It's like, oh, you buy a mobile home park, everyone owns their own home, and it's just... 
you know, they're just paying to be on the dirt, but this is affordable housing, you know, like, yeah, we collect 95% of our rents every month, but then there's 5% that take up 80% of our time because we're consistently pursuing them to get that final 5%, you know, collected. And, and a lot of times we, we never will, right? There's always some cash for keys or evictions going on. And it's just very management intensive. We do have on-site managers at every park and we, we, we try to make their life easier. They're just the eyes and ears, just kind of communicating to the tenants, delivering notices, everything else is handled offsite. And that's really one kind of piece of why I think we have an advantage is because we use a lot of virtual assistance overseas to help us run the property management team. We've been very successful at that. So we're able to have, you know, three VAs overseas for every one U.S. employee. And then every U.S. employee has an assistant that's a VA overseas to kind of help them take the $10 an hour tasks off their plate so they can focus on what matters most and those, those big priorities. Let's actually go into that a little bit because obviously you're running a pretty big organization at this point with as many tenants as you've got. There's a lot of responsibilities. I want to hear more about who do you have on your staff? Who do you have on your payroll that you're you know, on a day-to-day, they report to you, they're not a VA? And then who do you have on the VA side? Part of that is going to bleed into how we, you know, during the pre-interview, you kind of discussed some of the amazing accomplishments, such as closing the books by January 15th and issuing K-1s by March 15th consistently year over year. So that's going to be where we're going with this. But speak to me a little bit first about how the team is even laid out. Yeah. So we have 28 corporate office employees uh, or team members, right? And that includes the, the VAs, that includes some, you know, US-based people that are project managers that are, you know, accountants, our COO, for example. And then we have some, a couple of regional managers, one out of St. Louis and the other one out of Indianapolis that are kind of checking on our portfolio. Because most of the, the markets that we own in are secondary Midwestern markets from Bismarck, North Dakota to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, down to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you know, all the way over to Indy and some other areas as well. But so that's kind of the, the corporate staff from accounts receivable, accounts payable. I mean, the main role I think that, that a lot of people would be surprised of is like our marketing team is all overseas. You know, they're helping work with the on-site managers, do text overlays and designs on the images so that when they give the photos to the on-site managers to post to Facebook Marketplace, which is where we sell most of our homes, it just looks way more professional. There's a professional write-up and it just gets us you know, a lot more leads. You know, some of that is, is done overseas. We also have property managers that will oversee five on-site managers. And they have checklists of what they're going through on a daily basis for each park, kind of checking in and, and watching those metrics. And then we also have a whole sales team where we have some VAs that are cold calling to try to stir up off-market deals for self-storage and for mobile home parks. So that's a whole whole another division where we have 11 people over there from a you know, transaction coordinator, a rent comps team, a data team, and then the cold callers. Andrew, you mentioned that your VAs are helping with property management and they oversee on-site property managers. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that works? Yeah. So they'll oversee our rent manager software that we're using and kind of keep the tenant files up to date. They'll follow up with tenants. You know, Each property has a checklist that we go over in our KPI meeting every week that talks about the top initiatives, right? Like you know, following up with the on-site manager, being their kind of general manager to kind of manage the on-site manager. So the on-site manager wakes up and there's an email in their inbox that says, hey, today I need you to do these five things. I need you to go knock on lot 77 and deliver this notice to them. I need you to go check the, the water leak that was under lot 28. 
the plumber's supposed to have it fixed by 10 a.m. Can you check under there and make sure it's no longer leaking? And that he put the skirting back on the home. It's just various tasks like that that we try to just completely oversee from the corporate level and then just have the on-site manager just go and execute every day. So there's no thinking. It's just very simple checklists every day for the boots on the ground. This offshore talent from? Mainly two countries. One is Armenia and then the other one is South Africa. We found that the currency exchange rates are very favorable though in those two countries. And we're finding, you know, just extremely intelligent people. We use a system called predictive index where they'll do a cognitive and a personality assessment. And, you know, basically the cognitive is like a, some sort of an IQ test. And there's just very you know, high level people that, you know, we're able to hire for 1500 to 2000 us per month full time. And that's just done wonders for us. So aside from the cost arbitrage, what are the other reasons that you decided to offshore versus like build out a U.S. team? Yeah, I think the biggest piece is just the dedication, right? Like these people, you know, in the U.S., I think uh, just the work ethic, you know, with like people coming out of college is is just not there. And the loyalty specifically is not there. You know, when we're able to you know hire someone overseas and ramp them up and, and you know, provide them opportunities they're just much more dedicated and you know willing to do you know whatever it takes and they're more disciplined from my experience obviously we're just looking at south africa and armenia you know we've hired from some other countries but those two have really been uh, a positive light for us who oversees the offshore team do you have us like managers or directors that are holding them accountable and and how do they hold them accountable yeah great question we have a coo his name's john scortino he runs all of our operations and then he has a couple other high level kind of you know, VP type of talent. You know, one way that's really unique that we, it's a software we use called Hubstaff and all of our VAs have it. It takes screenshots like randomly about every five minutes or so of their screen to make sure they're not just sitting home playing video games or watching Netflix. It gives you a productivity score based on, you know, what they're doing on the computer. Even our phone system is a, a voice IP. So it's hooked up through the internet. So you know, we can really keep track and it, it'll send like a daily email showing like the productivity scores and a few screenshots from each person on my team. And it'll you know, just give me an insight, a little snapshot onto, you know, hey, is this person you know doing well? Hey, you know, one of our Wes, his productivity score is 39% today, where it, you know, on average, it should be around 80. What's going on? Then I can call him. I can see what's going on. Oh, turns out he had to leave. He had an emergency that he needed to take care of, you know, and it just gives that extra layer of accountability. That's very interesting. So in terms of your first couple of deals, and then if we were to compare your first couple of deals to your last couple of deals, do the economics get better at scale? Like the more systems, the more people on your team, are you finding that? And I know that underwriting is a big piece of this too. And so I guess what I'm trying to do is like, assume that underwriting is the exact same and you're you're highly effective across every single deal. As you've scaled do you realize more profits due to the systemization, due to that scale? And what would you attribute that to? Yeah, being vertically integrated in the mobile home park asset class is absolutely essential. You know, first off in apartments, there's really good third-party managers, property managers, you know, all over the country that are managing you know, tens of thousands of units. But in the mobile home park sector, there's like three you know, nationwide third-party property managers that manage mobile home parks. And we've bought in properties from two of them that had like 56% expense ratios. And we've taken those properties and now within our own vertical system, you know, those expense ratios are around 35%. So it's 
So we're just able to add tremendous amount of value, you know, because we have a vested interest in every dollar, right? That goes to that NOI. So we're really trying to save and get three quotes for every repair item where the property managers, they might just take the first quote they get and move on because they have a huge portfolio they're managing. So I think it's really important to manage in-house. And like you said earlier, it's a hands-on business. This is affordable housing. We're dealing with, you know, some sensitive situations. And I think the more hands-on, the more labor and, and attention you can give things and, and someone to reach out to the tenants and call them and talk to them, the faster you're going to be able to react to some of the things that happen, which like one of the things is people try to pull homes out of our park. You know, like wholesalers will come in and try to buy homes from our tenants. And, you know, we have a, a right of first refusal in our, our lot lease agreement, but that doesn't always, you know, get looked at and people will just buy homes and, and try to pull them out. So we're trying to like stay ahead of that with our tenants and, you know, ultimately make sure that we don't have high turnover like that. These other parks are showing expense ratios of 50, 55%. Is that what you said? But you're able to get yours down to 35 to 40? I would say that like most big funds out there mm-hmm. are operating parks around 45% expense ratios. And we're able to get ours down to around 35%. So I think that gives us a little alpha, gives us a little leverage. I think also we're buying parks directly from mom and pops, like 95, 96% of the parks we've ever bought have been direct to owner. Like there's no other buyer competing with us to try to get that deal. So we're able to create a little bit more alpha there. And then in addition to that, we're buying parks from mom and pops that are leaving meat on the bone, right? Like parks that are 60 to 70% occupied, we love all day because they cash flow day one. There's like 10 vacant lots. We can come in, fill those lots. We have a whole team of, of guys, US-based, that are just project managers dealing with infill where they're buying homes, bringing them in, getting them set up. Uh, submetering utilities is another thing that's just, you know, it, it reduces our expenses drastically. And these mom and pops that have owned these things forever, you know, they just haven't taken the steps to do those. So it gives us a good basis. I'm surprised to know that the funds out there that are doing this, I guess I'll call it professionally, maybe, maybe not, but uh, they're running at a 45% expense ratio and you're running at 35. What is the difference? Is the difference just that your cost basis is lower? Is it, you're you're just more hands-on or? That's that's a good question. I think it, uh, you know, yeah, more hands-on. I think we're able to do it for cheaper because we do have some scale also asset management fees and things like that, that kind of get baked into the the deals with the bigger funds. You know, they, they kind of make their money off of the fees rather than the, the property's performance a lot of times, not all of them, but many of them. So I think that that all combines into a, a unique picture. I think the way our structure is set up is we, we as GPs get paid on the back end. After we get our investors a return plus their money back, then we get to participate in the equity split and you know that's how we win so we are incentivized to make sure that we're thinking long term with our repairs we're not just putting a you know lipstick on the pig we're not just putting a band-aid on something are the funds offshoring as well like are they kind of running a similar vertically integrated model or i don't think so i think that's probably a big part of it too is that they have a lot of us based employees that are doing the property management why wouldn't they do that i think they're scared right of change they've never done it that way it's a new endeavor right there's like a trust factor that I think like the older generations. And I, again, we're talking like, I'm, I'm totally stereotyping here. I mean, I know one guy, Sam Hales, sure. that he's, he has some people overseas that I like helped him, you know, I nudged him because he's a good guy and he asked me for some help. And I was like, dude, you need to get some people overseas. And now he has like a whole division of, of bookkeepers that he, he utilizes that's overseas. So I think they're getting there. It's just, it's change, it's different. And I think for our generation, 
it's more common, right, for people to like you know have overseas help. But maybe for for the yeah. uh, you know, people ahead of us, it just wasn't common practice. How much of a role do you think the lower interest rate environment that we've had over the past you know decade plays into that? Because I could see that changing now as costs increase. At least in the accounting world, companies are now looking for ways to reduce costs. And that is one of the things that you can do is go overseas. So I wonder Dude, if that'll my, change over time. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, yeah, reducing costs. Who's not looking to do that? I have a good friend and she is in sales at a top Fortune 50 company. And you know, I was asking her, like, tell me about the role. And 90% of her role is just order taking. 90% of her job could be outsourced overseas. She makes like 100K a year. And like, I could get that done for 20K a year, like, like that, <laughs> right? But like some of those big Fortune 50 companies would catch a lot of slack if they outsourced that many jobs just overseas somewhere. Yeah. So I think there's some you know, potentially political you know, side of it too as well. Yeah. Well, I know Dylan wanted to, I keep seeing Dylan come off mute, so I'm going to kind of like slowly pass this over to him. Um, I know that he wanted to talk about your back office. Like what does your financial back office look like? Because how many... K1s do you file every year? It's probably 150. 150. And you get them all out by March 15th. Yeah. I mean, geez, I'm, I'm knocking on wood, right? Like, you know. I'm actually surprised to hear that it's only 150. Do you have investors that invest in each deal? We do. Yeah. Most of our investors are, are repeat investors. And, you know, the other thing with mobile home parks is these aren't like $50 million deals. You know, we're buying a park yeah. for 2 million, 3 million bucks, and, you know, maybe raising a million, you know, 10 people throw in 100 grand. And you're there. So it's a little bit different than some other asset classes. Yeah. How many investors would you say you have on average per deal? It's like ten. five? Five, yeah. ten? Okay. Yeah. Ten. So you maybe say you have 150 investors, but those investors might receive numerous K1s from different investments. I just want to make sure I understand that right. Yeah, different. Okay, yeah. got it. We, we like to get into the weeds a little bit because I'll be the first to say, you know, the average client of mine would probably struggle to get all of their financials ready by January 15th, like hard stop so that we can be in their books the entire time thereafter and then be able to execute by uh, March 15th and deliver all those timely. That does take an impressive, impressive back office, honestly. So the team that's responsible for that, maybe speak to the mix between US base offshore and the number of people and the roles that they have, because it sounds like you've got a COO. Do you also have like a controller or a CFO or I guess just explain it to me there? Yeah, so we have a fractional CFO that helps us out. We have a head bookkeeper and we have four overseas bookkeepers that help us out. Each one manages probably eight to 10 or so, you know, different entities themselves where they're doing P&L meetings every month with the team to kind of go through and, you know, make sure everything's classified. One thing that we do that's different, we use Podio for our expense tracking for AP. So every payment must have an invoice or a receipt and go into Podio and we'll like actually track that. And then it goes into like an approval process, kind of like bill.com has, except we just built our own because we just, there were some inefficiencies there. So we use Podio for that. And that, you know, every expense in QuickBooks will have a link in it to a Podio expense, which will have the receipt and everything attached to it. So that has been wonderful for us because it's, there's none of this like, ask my accountant category that just fills up with just, you know, various expenses on, on every single entity. And then every month we clear it all out with the PL review meeting, which is really important. So, I mean, yeah, without getting too granular, I think that's like 
the high level setup. That's impressive. I like that. That's an action item that you know I want to look into myself. That Podio. You said Podio. Podio, yeah, software by. Um, geez, I forget the company that owns Citrix. It. Citrix. We used to use Podio way back. Got it. Podio was awesome, man. Do you use Globiflow, Andrew? We do. They and, still have that. Yeah. Yep. We use that, and then there's a. Geez, there's a, a Zapier integration that Zapier, yeah. That that connects into there's yeah. like a Google Sheets platform that connects with QuickBooks. So like it'll pull the QuickBooks data yeah. and it'll pull the information from Podio. So it's, it's yeah. yeah, the automation piece has come a long way in the last, geez, five, 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Podio is awesome. It's a, um, like a lighter version of ClickUp, Dylan. Think about it like that. Got yeah. it. I'm building out all these systems myself too, as you guys know. I mean, well, maybe maybe Andrew doesn't know. I've got my own couple short-term rental properties and I would love to scale it. So I'm still stuck in the stone age, reconciling things manually and taking pictures of receipts and plugging them in. So I imagine there'll be a, a point at which it makes sense to start looking into some of these. So um, Yeah, I started there too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you don't mind, there's something I wanted to pivot to. It still relates to manufactured housing, mobile homes, but it's something we talked about before we decided to record this. And I think we can really spend the last half of this podcast diving deep into it. This is the part that I'm pretty excited to talk about just because it sounds like this is a passion of yours. And it's also something I find very interesting. So to give listeners a sense of what I'm talking about, we're talking about just the trend of manufactured housing in general and how that looks differently in other countries versus in the US. And really, we can tie that into what we think is possibly an affordable housing crisis in the US. So, Andrew, I know you probably have a lot to say on this, but let me start by asking you this and just exploring the manufactured housing research that you've done. Let's start with, you made a comment to me about how maybe other countries, and you named Sweden and Singapore, just, well, Sweden specifically, you mentioned as one who does it really well. And so maybe let's just start there and just talk about what manufactured housing is, what it looks like in other countries, and maybe where the US fits into that. Yeah, I think you got to go, you got to go a step back, right? Step back and look at the construction industry as a whole. And look at like the last hundred years, you know, there was like some big increases in productivity, but there really hasn't been much in the last 50 years. It's just very inefficient process, right? Especially building like, you know, single family houses, you know, if you're not building like a whole subdivision, I mean, but, but just the whole on-site construction process. And in Sweden, obviously everybody knows Ikea, you know, they're just been more akin to modular housing and factory built housing and people don't realize they're like big five-star hotels, big apartment complexes. Like you can build in pieces, parts of that in a factory and then deliver it to the site and assemble it you know, on site. And it's more expensive. It's more efficient, creates less waste. So it's, it's, it's just that I think is like a big uh, way that we could be more efficient in our construction world. And Sweden, like 80% of their new houses that are being built have some sort of modular factory built component to it. And same thing in Singapore, like these are very forward thinking countries. And in the US, it's like less than 10% of the new housing being built is being built in the factory. So, you know, affordable housing is this huge crisis. It's a huge problem, like everywhere, right? Like from small towns in the Midwest to, you know, San Francisco, right? Like, it's insane. So I think when you look at the green aspects of it, everybody's concerned with the environment and global warming, you know, one trash can worth of waste is what it takes to build a typical new manufactured home. 
when I'm sure you've, you've seen in the neighborhood around town, you know, when a new house is being built, you see those big 40 cubic yard dumpsters that get dumped every single week during the build process that takes six months to build. And it's like this, there has to be a better way. So it's a fragmented industry, the construction industry. And I think that, you know, there's some initiatives already that are, are pushing towards manufactured housing, but we could do a lot better. And I really am a big fan of factory built housing. I mean, you make a good point, right? It seems like a no brainer when you really think about the math, you think about the waste and you think about the efficiency. If you're building something in Minnesota where I'm at and it's, you know, the snow is flying or the rain's coming down and you've got teams coming and going from the build site, but the build site is stationary as opposed to the build site being an assembly line. You can imagine what if people had to assemble a car in your driveway instead of at the car factory, right? That's what, that's the analogy I like to think of. But if it's such a no-brainer, then what are we waiting for as a country, as a U.S.? Why are we not pushing for this? Is it just like because of our construction industries being so deeply rooted in, in our job market? Yes. And there's a great podcast on this, on the Freakonomics radio show, where they go into the specifics of, of why there's a lot of political reasons for that and unions and things like that of kind of like, hey, this is how we've done things forever. And this is kind of you know, where we're at. But yeah, no one likes change, right? Especially people that make their living off of doing it a certain way. So yeah, it's a really interesting industry to look at. And I just think there has to be a better way. And, you know, I'm trying to do my part by just using manufactured housing in a big way. And I think last year we did over 250 homes. We brought in and filled vacant lots with over 250 new affordable housing units across the you know Midwestern you know, secondary tertiary markets that we own in where, you know, Developers don't go say, Hey, I'm going to go build a 250 house subdivision outside of Indianapolis, Indiana, you know, and it's going to be affordable housing. That's going to each house is going to cost a hundred grand. No, there's no profit in that. They're going to build the luxury higher end stuff because there's, there's higher margins. So I think it's just, it's weird. And we're just trying to do our part. You mentioned it earlier too, that nobody really wants to live next to a mobile home park. So I live in North Carolina. There's. Charlotte, there's Raleigh, there's Winston-Salem and Greensboro. And then like, people are going to get mad at me for saying this, but a lot of, a lot of rural areas in between all of that, right? Not to say that there's not a bunch of other cities. I'm from Hickory, North Carolina, all right? Tertiary market, middle of nowhere. So don't get mad at me that I didn't just call your city out if you live in North Carolina. But the point is, is that if you're in the city, you for sure don't want to live next to a mobile home park. So you find the mobile home parks out beyond city limits and things like that. So why don't we have more of them? I think at least from my understanding, and I have zero data to back this up, but I would bet that a large part of it is just people don't want to live next to it. And so it pushes you out and then it becomes an undesirable location, even though it is affordable. So I'd be curious to kind of hear about the permitting process. Cause you mentioned this at the beginning, you said the permitting process was really tough. So talk to me about that. Yeah, the zoning process to get a new manufactured housing community developed is very tough. There's also economics behind this, right? So as a city, if you have a 100-lot mobile home park and say you have 50 kids in this mobile home park that need to go to public school, right? Well, it costs on average like $12,000 a year to put a, a child through public school. So you have that going for it, but the property taxes, remember, it's all land. So you're paying property taxes on the land, not like an apartment complex where you're, you know, able to get a higher assessed value. And then also, you know, so the, the individual mobile home trailer owners are paying personal property taxes, just like you pay for the registration on your license plate for your car. So it's maybe a hundred, 200 bucks a year 
for the taxes, the personal property taxes on their mobile home. And then, you know, the mobile home park owner is just owning the land. So they're just paying taxes on that plus, you know, some improvements. But that is a disconnect. It's a lost leader for the local municipalities based on, you know, the kids needing school, the hospital bills, you know, things like that, because a lot of people don't have health insurance. So they'll go for a common cold, they'll go to the emergency room, right? And then that, you know, can filter down to the local municipality too. So there's some other deeper rooted causes besides just not wanting to live next to a trailer park. So even if everybody wanted to live in a trailer park, like everybody in the world wanted to live in a trailer park, it would not economically make sense for the cities because you'd have way too many people and not enough tax revenue coming in. That's very interesting. At the same time, like like I just posted on LinkedIn this morning, Cary, North Carolina, there's a 200 lot mobile home park and the owner is looking to sell it. Some developers want to buy it and build big multifamily there. But the city's trying to figure out a path forward because all these people, these are you know dog groomers. These are service workers in local restaurants, post office men, police officers, plumbers. Like these are people that you need in your community. Like if you displace these people and make them go commute an hour outside of town, like San Jose, California, like where do all those people live, right? Everybody there is wealthy and affluent and they want these people to help them, you know, live their life and have a better quality life. Oh, but you got to live an hour outside of town and commute in to do that. Like no one's going to do that. So you need this manufactured housing, this affordable housing within the metro to like, you know, bring benefits, you know, and I think it's just a catch 22. Is that why you call it a loss leader? No, no, no. Why I called it a loss leader is just the dollars and cents, right? Like at the end of the month, it's like, hey, we're spending, you know, what I say, 50 kids times 12,000 a year, you know, plus. So when I think of a loss leader, I think of, hey, like I'll give you this tax return for free because you're going to bring over all this oh, other. Gotcha. Work, exactly. Right, yeah, for the do. cities. So really it's yeah. like, okay, we're going to take the hit on the schooling costs, the hospital costs, all that stuff. But we add to the community necessary people that do the necessary things to keep a community thriving. And And some forward thinking municipalities are doing exactly that Interesting, because they realize the value. It's kind of like with the refugees. There's certain cities in the U S right now that are, you know, putting out these big marketing campaigns, trying to attract those people to come to their cities and work and, and have jobs because they want that population growth. They want what that brings. Right. But there's other places, you know, like California that, they want less people. They want people to leave. So they have, you know, different yeah. uh, you know, regulations to make that happen. I imagine that's got to be tough as a city leader because it's probably not getting you votes or maybe it is getting you votes. I don't know. Yeah, it depends, right? I don't know. It's a deeper problem, you know, that, yeah. that we could talk about. But I mean, there's so many mobile home parks out there too right now that we could talk about the stigma, right? Like 70% or more of the mobile home parks in the US are owned by these mom and pops, baby boomers that are using these as retirement vehicles. And now they're getting tired. Now they're not keeping up with the maintenance like they used to. And, you know, now it looks like the ratty trailer park. And that's why the cities don't like them because they don't want that, you know, kind of image. So, you know, the new generation of mobile home park investors that are coming in and actually spending capital and making the, these places nicer, I think is the saving grace to the asset class to try to keep these around. Is there an alternative to a mobile home park that still takes on all of the positive attributes of manufactured housing? Like I'm thinking about the middle ground between the Lennar mega neighborhoods, the spec built homes that you guys are talking about at the beginning of this with like the $750,000 price tag. 
plus mm. versus just a mobile home park? Like, is there something in the future that maybe there's an untapped market for these super affordable modular structures, but that maybe don't hold the mobile home park title that we haven't talked about? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. Uh, I was looking at something outside of Atlanta, these build for rent communities where they're building a modular home that has like a basement, you know, has like a, a solid concrete foundation, but they're putting a, a modular home on top of it. So it's a more permanent structure versus like, you know, a mobile home that has a hitch sticking out of the front of it. And they're making like a build to rent community out of those because it's faster, right? It's easier to get those homes and it still looks just like a regular subdivision. So I think there is a place for it, but again, it goes back to like, like the renter nation, right? Like there's apartment complexes going up everywhere. There's these built to rent communities going up everywhere. And it's kind of scary because it's not allowing that lower income person to create equity. And in a mobile home park, when a person owns their own home, in that article I was telling you about in Cary, North Carolina, those people own their homes and they had value in them. You know, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 is what their home would have cost if they were able to sell it. Well, now they need to move it to another park and all the other parks are full. And now it's like going to cost them $20,000 to move it. There's like all these like logistical issues that come with that. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. It's something that I always think about too. And and like, even when you're thinking about multifamily, because modular and manufactured, not just housing in general, but construction as a whole, I think, you know, you can start plugging that into a lot of different conversations. Maybe the two start to converge, right? So do you see a trend in the next five years of there being more of a shift towards mobile home parks? Because this whole time we've been talking about this dwindling supply, but this increased demand. Is there any end in sight? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel to say over the next five years or even a longer time horizon, or you'd start to see a shift in that? Maybe just speak to that. It's just really hard. It's a really hard problem, right? Because it's so fragmented. Like every municipality has these, you know, it's, it's all local right? So it's not like there's just one legislation that's like, hey, we're going to cure this for the whole country. It's like, hey, you got to go, you know, very, you know, slowly to all these municipalities and convince these zoning boards that, hey, this is why a mobile home park would be great for your community. It's tough. People are doing it. I know some communities before interest rates skyrocketed, had their hands in, I think, a dozen different developments across the country. And, you know, some of the other bigger fish are trying to work on that, but it's just, it's very difficult to do. And, you know, MHI, is a manufactured housing institute has lobbyists in DC that are working to try to you know fix this problem every year they put up some manufactured homes on the lawn there outside the Washington Monument and you know try to just let the senators walk through them and see that hey you know the whole trailer park stigma the the trailer stigma is changing manufactured homes nowadays if you go look at them and walk through one you would be so caught off guard quartz countertops I mean, it's beautiful, beautiful. And I think we just have to get that out of, you know, these local zoning officials' minds that, hey, every mobile home park looks like 8 Mile. You know, I'm drawing a lot of similarities between this and senior living crisis because there was a while there where it was hard for a lot of senior folks to find affordable housing, maybe five, 10 years ago. And in the last five, 10 years, we've seen such a boom in the development of senior housing. It's still a much needed asset class. But some of the arguments against it are actually very similar to the arguments that you were making from the city side, because senior homes have a greater traffic for emergency personnel, and there's lower income people there, and they take more of the local municipality and the local counties 
revenue versus what they're generating. And then eventually there was nationwide you know, programs and relief to build those kinds of communities. Things started rolling out. So maybe that's what we have to see in the mobile home park community similar. And, and rather than having a senior housing crisis, it's just a general affordability crisis that something's got to give. Yeah. And I think one important factor that I, I need to mention is there's some agency lenders, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are active in the space. They offer the best in asset class terms. And so that's our whole business model is, hey, we're going to buy with a local bank. We're going to fix it up. And then we're going to get it to qualify for Fannie and Freddie debt, which is long-term fixed interest rate debt. But they have tenant purchase protections that you know you have to get out to your tenants. We're like, they, they come with strings attached, these loans, right? Like the property has to be a very you know good, high quality property, no deferred maintenance. They have engineering inspections and all the third parties. And I think it's a good system that's in place because it incentivizes investors like myself to you know fix up your property and keep it at a, a certain level to get and keep this quality debt. But at the same time, it has those protections for the tenants. So you know, I think it's a baby step. I think another big step would be to offer if Fannie Mae offered financing for the purchase of a manufactured home. And we, we started leaning more towards that instead of Section 8 housing, you know, because then these people could use Section 8 to purchase a manufactured home in a park, which, you know, they're going to have a higher payment when they're purchasing it, but then it drops off and they would just be paying lot rent. So it would like be a more sustainable long-term model instead of, hey, Section 8, once you're on it, you're just on it for life. You know, that's the expectation. So just some ideas I have, but I definitely think the agency lenders are doing a good job of, of improving communities because of their caveats and their loan agreements. That last part that you mentioned as a potential future program that could be launched as a replacement or a supplement to Section 8. I mean, something you just said about Section 8 doesn't really solve the problem. It's just a kind of a perpetuates a state of you know no ownership. It doesn't provide ownership, right? Because you're perpetually a renter if you're utilizing Section 8. I really, that does resonate with me. I really like the sound of that. And I wonder if just getting that message out is really what it would take. But, uh, you know, I'm sure that we could probably solve all of the world's problems on this podcast. And it's just three of us. So I think we need some more. Uh, we need some more backing, I think, is what it comes down to. Agreed, Dylan. <laughs> awesome, Andrew. Well, I know that we could talk about this all day because manufactured housing and manufactured construction in general, prefab construction is something I find very interesting. You find very interesting. But uh, I think we've covered a lot today and we'll just have to come back on another time and do some more talking about it. But I do have two more questions for you that I like to end the podcast with for everybody. And so the first one I'm going to ask you, we call this one the Streamline Spotlight. And it's what technology have you most recently adopted to streamline your business or professional workflow? And what specifically has it done to make you more effective? I would say Hubstaff, you know, circling back to that, it's a, a tracking for remote employees and, you know, again, it gives you productivity scores, takes screenshots periodically, you know, to keep track of, hey, what are they looking at? Because there's stories every day of VAs that have three jobs and they're making all this money and they're, they're not giving full effort to any which one. So I think Hubstaff's a big one. You know, we also use Trello, which is like a digital whiteboard for our project management and property management for each property. They have their own Trello board. And those are, are two really good, you know, technologies that we use. The last question I have for you is if somebody wants to get in contact with you, what would be the best way they should do that? That would be via our website. It's just keelteam.com, which is my last name, K-E-E-L, team, like a basketball team.com. 
Uh, I have a free ebook on there. talks about the top 10 mistakes that people make as an LP investing into a mobile home park syndication. So you can check that out. And uh, yeah, thank you again, guys, for having me on the show. Thank you so much, Andrew. We'll be talking soon. And I, I'm going to go check out that 10 top mistakes right now, actually. Thanks for listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast. There are three ways that you can connect with us. If you're interested in getting email updates on upcoming shows, go to www.mlrepodcast.com and subscribe there. If you'd like to explore a tax and accounting relationship with our CPA firm, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash MLRE and fill out the web form to get started. And if you'd like to connect with Dylan or I on social media, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Dylan Brown CPA or Brandon Hall CPA. Shoot us a request. We'd love to connect. We'll see you next time.